All right, thank you. Take your Bible and join me in Matthew chapter number 6. Yes, I've been praying. I've got about three messages I was praying over today. And I think the Lord wants me to go here and just continue where we left off. In the Matthew chapter number 6, this, uh, this will expedite things because much of my groundwork has already been laid. And in Matthew chapter number 6, we look at the remainder of what's here and we pick up the second major thought for you this morning as we began, we concluded that we can't serve God and mammon. And so as we look at this chapter, we look at verse 24 and following, uh, really verse number 25 is where we need to pick up. And so if you would just read verse 25 out loud with me as we begin, Jesus says here, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment. Lord, I pray that you will bless our time in your word. May it minister grace to our souls. And may each one of us continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. So the principle that we left off with is that we cannot serve God and man at the same time. And so with that, as his disciples... We understand there's some things that we can take away from this. Let me give you some points, if, if I could, just to encourage you by way of application as we anticipate answering the question of what are we going to do as we follow Jesus? You see, this is, this is our Savior anticipating where our mind is going to go. He's already ahead of us because He knows once we cross that line and we say, Lord, here am I, send me. Then in the back of my mind, we're wondering, okay, now, if I'm not focused on taking care of the things of this life, how's that going to work out? Naturally, we ought to be concerned about that, and Jesus is going to alleviate our concern. Before I give you some principles here to take home with you, I want you to understand, this passage cannot be taken out of context. If we do, we're going to put words in God's mouth and make promises that God never made. The promise that's given here to live a life free of worry is not a blanket statement for someone to come to that doesn't know Jesus, that hasn't said, I'll follow you, Lord. It's the same kind of principle that applies to the Philippian believers. Those Philippian believers, Paul promised them under divine inspiration the moving of the Holy Ghost. He promised those believers at Philippi, because of their heart towards missions and their help to Paul as he ministered for the gospel, because they gave to missions in their lack and in, in sacrificial giving, because the church at Philippi did that, that's when the promise kicks in. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the problem comes when you want to apply that verse and you're not really wholeheartedly giving to the gospel like God would have you give. You see the breakdown? The breakdown with this passage is going to come when you're not really living for Jesus like you should and you're wanting to apply this to your life as if you were. The only place you'll find the sweet peace and the comfort that is backed up by verses like Isaiah 26, 3 and Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing but in all things by prayer and thanksgiving. Let your supplications be made known unto God. Let your requests be made known unto God. 
The only time you'll find that peace, that everything's going to be okay, is when you are right in the middle of where Jesus wants you. You have stepped over the line. You've said, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. Okay, now how does that work out? How does that fall out? Well, let me begin by showing you some examples in the Bible of both how it didn't work out so well and how it did work out. The first I would point you to would be a man by the name of Gehazi. Gehazi. This man was uh, Elisha's servant. And the story that I would remind you of is when this man was serving with Elisha. In Syria, up in the north country, there was a man named Naaman. Naaman was general. And Naaman contracted leprosy. And he was seeking for relief. And there was a little Hebrew girl. You remember the story. A little Hebrew girl, the slave girl that was there. She told Naaman, there's somebody you need to go see. And they you know, they didn't listen to her at first. Really? i got to go see this guy. Why can't he just do it from here? And so he makes the journey down. Okay, I'll listen to her. I mean, what have I got to lose anyway, right? If the leprosy's gone, then great. But if not, then well, okay. So he makes the journey down to go find Elisha. He finds Elisha. Talks with Elisha. And Elisha says, yeah, you see that dirty Jordan River over there? Go dip, go dip in it seven times. What? And so Naaman leaves, and he's not going to do it because of how nasty the Jordan is. I can attest to that. It's gross. It's just a nasty river. It, it just It's not somewhere you want to be even really getting close to getting into. And there's people down there all the time that they go to get baptized in Jordan because you know, they want to do it like Jesus did. I just watched. We had devotions on the shore. I didn't get the Jordan. I don't blame Naaman. And so I, I can understand that aspect of it. I mean, you go up to the north country and to Dan, uh, that's on the borders of Syria. And the water's crystal clear. The, you know, the headwaters of the Jordan, it's beautiful up there. So yeah, like Naaman, I'd be like, why can't I go up there? You know, I've, Okay, you want me to get into this really dirty water to get clean? Yeah. So his servant that's with him, Naaman, convinces him, okay, Naaman, again, what have you got to lose? Just listen to the man of God. And Naaman does. And what happens? He dips seven times. I don't know what numbers one through six look like. Kids, can you think about that? You know, number one, still a leper. Number two, still a leper. Number three, still a leper. Number four, still a leper. Say it with me. Number five, still a leper. Now we're almost there. Number six, still a leper. Mud. What? Number seven. He comes up that seventh time. And after all the mud washes off, no lepers. He's healed. And he's ecstatic. Wouldn't you be? I mean, leprosy, this was a this 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 was an, a diagnosis for the rest of your life, perhaps, if you couldn't get a, a bill of clean health. And so Naaman he comes again and he's clean and he rejoices and he makes an offer to Elisha. He says, I just want to say thanks because this was amazing. You know, you said this would happen. God did it. This, this miracle happened and now I don't have leprosy. And I believe Naaman, you know, came around to belief in God through that. And yet here he is trying to give Elisha a gift. And what did Elisha do? Elisha said, no, not going to take it. Because you can't buy the miracles of God. You can't buy God off with your money, Naaman. You're missing the point. And so, I mean, think about this. This is a high general, a high-ranking general of Syria. He's got plenty of means by the king and, and his country to be able to come and just bless the man of God thoroughly. And Gehazi is watching all of this. And Elijah sends him away. 
and says, no, I don't need any of it. Can I tell you that Elisha had a single vision? He had a single eye. But Gehazi, he had an evil eye. And he got focused on mammon. So as the story unfolds, you can read in 2 Kings 5 and in those verses you see Gehazi. Naaman leaves and heads back towards Syria. And here comes Gehazi, hot on his heels. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, Naaman, you know what? I don't know why my master said what he said. You know, he's, he's changed his mind. We'll take the gifts. Okay. And so what does Naaman do? He gives Gehazi. Now, you'll, you'll understand why I'm taking you to this illustration here now. What was it? Somebody remind me. Especially you kids. You, you hear this story about Gehazi. And you know what happened to him after he took the gifts from Naaman? What were the gifts that he received from Naaman? She said it. Food and raiment. And money and stuff. But the big thing was food and raiment. How many changes of clothes? And this is a big deal because these are treasures. Remember, these kind of clothing, this kind of clothing would be a treasure in that day. So did Gehazi have a single eye? He was focused on the here and now. And the outcome for Gehazi was not good because Naaman's leprosy then clung to him. And Gehazi was plagued with leprosy until he died. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't choose the right decision, you know, Jesus is going to strike you with leprosy. Please don't take that away from this. That's what happened to Gehazi because his heart was divided. And you cannot serve God and mammon. But can I tell you, if you do decide to stay on the other side and not follow Jesus, or if you wind up distracted serving mammon instead, the same kind of corruption will happen in the end. Just like what that leprosy did to Gehazi, that will happen to any future reward you could have. It will become contaminated, and sin will take over, and you will miss the mark. doesn't mean you'll walk around in gross you know, lasciviousness the rest of your life. It just means you're going to miss out on all the blessings that God would have for you. There's another man that I would tell you about, and I'll tell you about him rather quickly because you can go back and read about him in the book of Joshua, chapter number 7. Yep. Joshua, chapter number 7. Why do I pick him? Again, like Gehazi, what was it that Achan saw and lusted after in Jericho that he took and hid in his tent? Raiment and a wedge of gold. So do you see why I'm clinging to these? Because these are the lurements. It was the same for Achan. It was the same for Gehazi. It's the same for you and me today. Food and clothes. Where's your treasure going to be? Now let me tell you about somebody else that it did work out the opposite for. Uh, two people, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The first I would point to is actually bridging the, the, the texts because we read about what he did in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11, but his life account in what he did for God was actually in the first five books of the Bible particularly in Exodus. And the man's name was Moses. And Hebrews reminds us that he suffered with God's people. Why did he do that? 
because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He weighed it in the balances and he says, what God wants matters more to me. God's people matter more. And he suffered affliction with the children of Israel. He chose that. He chose to suffer affliction. He could have had all of the garments of Egypt at his disposal, all of the all of the wealth of Pharaoh. He could have been in Pharaoh's right hand. Another Joseph story, you know, from rags to riches. That's Moses, from the bulrushes to the palace. And yet he chose to suffer affliction with God's people because he had faith to believe in a greater promise. The other man I would tell you about is a man who had everything going for him. I mean, background, education, uh, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the school of Hillel, one of the cream of the crop schools of the day, uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You can read his pedigree in Philippians chapter number three. And this man came to a crossroads when the Lord showed up in his life and drew the line in the sand and said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. In other words, it's, you're persecute, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. That is Jesus. And this man, who he didn't have a single eye to begin with, God smote him with blindness on the road to Damascus. And he had to go and find Ananias in the next town he was headed to and get baptized before the scales would be removed from his eyes. That's interesting. That's interesting because he couldn't see clearly, so God helped him along to have true spiritual vision, to have a single eye for God. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is the man that would write to the Philippian believers again, who also made the promise, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is the same man that in that same letter said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the single eye. So what do we do is we serve God. We, we understand we can't serve God and man. That's the principle, Lord, we understand that. Let me give you some points to live by. I would encourage you, like those Macedonian believers... The only way you're going to see that happen is when you first give yourself to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read about that, don't we? These, these believers that gave so much to see the gospel get to the ends of the earth, they first gave themselves to the Lord. They were poor. They didn't have a lot to give to begin with. And they were generous with their giving, above and beyond. And the whole reason is in verse 5. Of 2 Corinthians 8. It says there they first gave themselves to the Lord. That is a point you need to live by. Make sure you give yourself to the Lord first. I don't have much, Lord, but whatever I have is yours. And then let me encourage you as you're serving the Lord. Look for ways that you can give money away. It's great. Hey, think about it this way. What if, what if you could... Order your affairs in such a way. You know, I'm going to kind of build on what Dave Ramsey teaches here. Live like no one else so you can give like no one else. Okay, you're with me? What if you could order your affairs? You know, get an emergency fund, a baby emergency fund. You know, all his little six steps there. Get out of debt. Have a fully funded emergency fund. Be working towards investments and kids' colleges and paying off houses. And then invest, invest, invest. And let your money work for you. What if you could... Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and get to the place where 
you're, you're not laying, up, laying it up for your own nest egg okay, that you can you know, retire on and go live in the Bahamas and live like a king. No, you have a kingdom focus and a kingdom purpose. Let's say you come to church one week and we have a missionary that we didn't know was coming and he shows up and he tells us about a need and he's, uh, well, I'll use a real life scenario. Okay, yeah, years ago when I was at Elmwood Baptist Church, a missionary that we support, Inca Fassenro, he came to Elmwood and he preached. He didn't ask us for anything. I want to be clear about that. He did not petition for anything. But through the course of his message, those that were listening heard that he had a need. He, he was totally unaware of it, I guarantee you. He had no idea that we picked up on it. But we did. And we heard about the need. And this was a huge need. He was talking about shacks that they're trying to build over there and, and uh, mud churches, you know, that they're building with bricks and all this stuff in Africa, in, in Nigeria. Pastors that don't even have books, let alone shoes on their feet, and they're, they're as thin as a toothpick because they make sure everybody else eats first and then they eat last, and sometimes there is no eating for them, and they just do it because they're pastors and they love God and they want to see people saved, and they're just doing the best they can. Well, there was, a, there was a, an instance that he mentioned in one of his illustrations about not having a generator. Now, I'm telling you this story because through the course of that meeting, we all prayed together and we said, you know what, we can take care of that. They don't have a generator? Generator's done. Shipping container, generator, the whole nine yards. We just decided we're going to do this. And we did and we raised enough funds to cover the shipping container from the United States to Nigeria with a generator and books and clothes and whatever else we could pack in that thing to get over there. And I'll tell you, I got the letter back from, uh, from a very humbled, thankful Yinka Fassenro and his family that now they could take and distribute Bibles and study books and these things to these pastors and this generator... Generator. Did you turn your electricity on this morning? Don't take it for granted. Especially in California. Anyway. I'm telling you. So what if you could order your affairs in a way that nobody even knows? I'm going to use a hypothetical now. You come to church and a missionary shares a story and is preaching. He's not asking you for anything, but you pick up he has a need. What if you could just say, you know what? Between me and the Lord, here it is. Checkbook. What does he need for that? Maybe do some Googling. Search on it and you say, he needs this over there. Boom, done. Here's the check. Take care of it. What? Not, we need to take up a special love offering. and uh, I need to go sell shoes to be able to raise extra money. Or I need to say no to a cup of coffee. You've already done all of that. You already worked. So now, and you've saved and you've, and you've invested wisely. And the Lord has blessed you. As a man purposeth in his heart, and as the Lord has blessed him, so let him give. You come, you hear that. Nobody else even knows but you and God. And somehow, some way, the funds show up and that need is met on a foreign mission field simply because you said yes to God and weren't so focused on mammon that you could help. And you could be used to that. That's just a... Now, how liberating would that be? How freeing would that feel? To be able to just write that check and it's done. $1,000, no big deal. Here it is. It'll replenish. We'll make sure that we you know, are wise moving forward. But 
now that missionary can go and do God's work and you can continue serving the Lord. Give yourselves first to the Lord. Find ways to give money away. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Maybe you need to look at simplifying your lifestyle. Maybe you need to learn contentment. Godliness with contentment is, ga- is great gain. So I asked you this morning, whom do you serve? Is it God or you? Here's question number two from our Savior, I believe. In my own words, paraphrasing it. Whose kingdom will you advance? Yours or God's? Whom do you serve? If you've already nailed it down, you're serving God. Then the second question becomes, whose kingdom are you going to focus on advancing? Is it God's kingdom or is it your kingdom? Matthew 6, 25, Jesus makes an inference. He says, therefore, I say unto you. Verse 25, these words, the word therefore, you know, you always want to ask, why is the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? It comes from two words, diatuto, and it is a connective, and it has a force to it. So it's building on what came before. Because we've already discerned which side we're on in serving God, therefore, because you're going to serve God and not mammon, because you're going to have a single eye, and because you're going to lay up treasure in heaven, because you're a disciple of Jesus who's wanting to live the blessed life of God, even if there's persecution, it doesn't matter. You want to stand before God with a clear conscience one day. Jesus says, therefore, I say unto you, don't worry about tomorrow. Because that's in the back of their mind, isn't it? Okay, if, if I'm not focused on laying this up here, Where's it going to come from? <laughs> I've got to eat. You know, we've, we've got to buy groceries. We've got to, we've got to have clothes to wear. We've got to have basic necessity of life. Jesus says, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about those. Over-anxiety. That's, that's what the Word reveals. Okay, He says in verse 25, take no thought. The Word has the idea of don't be overly anxious about it. It doesn't mean don't plan and and be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and count the cost and all those things. He's not saying, he's just saying don't let it tear you in multiple directions because you're keeping a single focus on serving God. It's generally due to normal things in life. One study has suggested that an average person's anxiety, okay, if we look at people who suffer from from anxiety, it focused on these areas. Listen, this is revealing. 40% have anxiety about things that will never happen. 40%. That's almost half of people that struggle with anxiety. They're worried about things that are never even going to happen to begin with. 40%. 30% are worried about the past, and they're overly anxious about the past and things that happened back there that they can't even change anyway. Um, The next, uh, you know, you can't change the past. The next one, it was 12%. About 12% of people in this study uh, suffered from anxiety due to criticism by others. What did somebody else say? Which mostly was untrue, by the way, according to the study. And what they said wasn't even true, and they're all worried about it. 12%. 10% were overly anxious about their health. 
10% of the study, which, by the way, it's worse with stress. And 8%, 8% out of all the people that were studied, only 8% were worried about real problems that they were going to face. Only 8%. What consumes most of our anxiety? Okay, therefore. You could also literally translate it as, because of this, 19 to 24, verses 19 to 24, because of all of that. Verses 19 to 24 commands our absolute, undying, unwavering, undivided allegiance to God. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Well, we pledge allegiance to God first. And then we pledge allegiance to America. And, you know, so the question arises, how in the world am I going to take care of my basic needs if I'm always serving God? If I'm always giving, you know, everything out? If I'm, if I'm exhausting all this... I think about the, the caterpillar owner, I forget his name, but you've heard me reference this before, maybe heard other preachers use him as an illustration. Uh, people couldn't understand why his, his, uh, his net profit continued to increase when he gave, uh, gave more out than he took in, and he would get a gross amount in, and he would give, and just give and give. And so he was approached about that, and they couldn't understand, how does your net profit, selling all these big caterpillars and tractors and all of that, how does your net profit continue to grow when you're giving so much away? And in his simplicity, he answered, and he said, well, it's real simple. You know, he's, he's a man who you know, works with shovels. He says, I shovel it out, and God shovels it back, and his shovel's bigger. That's logic that I can understand. I don't know how it all works, but I shovel it out, and he shovels it back, it's bigger. And that's the way it works with this idea. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just give. Just do what God wants you to do. And let him take care of tomorrow and the things you need. And so how am I going to take care of my basic needs if I'm always serving God? Jesus' response. Look how simple it is. I'll put it in, in my own words here. But he says basically, it's simple. It's because he's always serving you. You're serving God. How am I going to take care of things? Because God is always serving you. He's going to look out for you. He's going to care for you. He gives two illustrations. Do you see the connection of the twos threaded throughout this passage? Two treasures, two eyes, two masters. Then he makes this statement about not worrying about tomorrow, and he says, let me give you two illustrations. Two illustrations, the first being the birds, the second being the lilies. And then he'll have another application point about uh, adding height to your stature. Uh, most of the commentaries I consulted uh, understood that as adding length of uh, length of life to you, adding another hour or adding another day of time to your life. You can't do that by worrying. In fact, worrying is going to take that away. And if you if you get compacted down with it, works with either illustration, doesn't it? Because if you're going to try to add a cubit, which would be about a forearm span, that's substantial. Man, I might be able to play basketball then. Maybe I still probably won't be able to jump, but. That's like a whole arm's length. Can you add that to yourself? That's, I don't care how much you get on an inversion table or hang by your neck. It ain't happening. You can stretch your feet all you want. That's, that's not going to work. Jesus says, you can't do that. 
In fact, if you're stressed and worried about doing that, you're probably going to go the other way. Because you're going to get compacted down with all the grief and all the worry and all the pain. And it actually works against you. You can't add anything to what God has already done and His creating you. So the first one, the first illustration Jesus uses is the fowls of the air, the birds. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet. You know, they're not worried about laying all this up. They're not worried about laying up earthly treasures. They just do their daily tasks. Now, does that mean a bird doesn't have to work for its food? Please say no. It doesn't mean that a bird doesn't have to work for its food. How's that for a double name? It means he works his his hiding out every day looking for that next worm. And how often do you see birds working on nests? We were out camping. We saw huge bald eagles' nests. I mean, this thing, you can fit a Volkswagen up there. It was massive. And that took a lot of work to build that nest. And so Jesus is not saying, you don't have to work and everything's just going to show up. The Bible teaches if a man will not work, neither should he eat. I said that specifically, and that's the wording. If a man will not, does not desire to, does not want to, cannot be motivated to work, neither should he not can't, he cannot, it's, he shouldn't eat. Not that he can't eat, he shouldn't eat. That's the principle. And boy, we, we should live by that, right? So Jesus isn't promoting just sit back and let it all come to you and wait for the silver spoon. Birds have to work too. But there's a difference between what a bird does naturally because of its instinct and instinction and, and how it was created. It just knows what if it's in an area where there isn't anything to eat? That bird might die. But doesn't God see that too? Isn't he concerned about the sparrows? Are there not people that are hungry around the world? Were there not people that were hungry even in Jesus' day when he taught this? That probably even died of hunger? That he didn't help? Yeah. So we're not talking about, you know, answering the problems of world hunger here. Well, if that's the case, then why is anybody hungry? If Jesus says God's just going to provide for them all. There are other things that factor into that. The principle is, the birds don't worry about it. That's what he's teaching. Don't worry about it. Whether I live, it's to God. Whether I die, it's to God. A savior of life unto some, a savior of death unto others. Whether it's in luxury, in a king's palace because I'm his cupbearer. Or whether it's in a deep, dark dungeon somewhere in a pit. It's for God. Whether I have a lot or a little, it doesn't matter because I'm serving God. The bird just instinctively trusts and works and does what he needs to. And God feeds him. That's the point Jesus makes. They're not worried about it. And then he points this out, and I love this, especially for our PETA friends. Are you not much better than they? I do sincerely wish people could understand the difference in how creation unfolded. But sadly, many people don't even believe the Bible to begin with. But the Bible does teach that man was created in the image of God. Male and female created in them. And we are the pinnacle. Mankind, humankind, men and women, Human beings are the pinnacle of his creation. 
Does that mean he's not concerned about the birds and the fish and all the other creatures? He is. And all creation groaneth and travaileth until now. But there's a difference between us and them, and that is accountability to God because we can make a decision to choose to do right or wrong. We have a conscience, and we can think with a thought-out plan, and there's things that make us different. And so, when we follow what the Bible teaches, we learn how to treat each other, and we learn how to treat God. We don't wind up in an animalistic society steeped in cannibalism because everybody's just animals. No, there's a distinction. We're not birds. Jesus points out that God looks at us and says we are of much more value to him than birds. How precious is the soul of a human being for whom Jesus came to die? You know, Jesus came to die. He didn't come to die for all the birds except by the way of redemption of creation. All creation will be redeemed in the end. But he didn't come and shed his life's blood to save birds and fish and, and those. He died to save men and women who would believe on him as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. If the fish needed a Savior, he probably would have come as a fish. Just saying. Mankind, humans, needed redemption. And Jesus Christ came to be that Lamb. He died in our places, though he were us for us. Look at the birds. God feeds them. Old Vance Havner, he said this in his All the Days devotional, Behold the Fowls of the Air. On this verse he commented, he said, This morning the, the wood thrush, putting on an early concert in my backyard, reminded me of how much I owe to my feathered friends who have sung for me through the years free of charge. Since those precious boyhood days in the country long ago, I've been indebted to the birds who have brightened many a day through generation after generation of cardinals, meadowlarks, mockingbirds, vireos, warblers, many, many more. They've had their troubles too, and adversity has haunted them as well as me, but they keep singing. Not because they found an answer, but because they have a song. And I like this. He said, they still sing the same tunes, thank the Lord. <laughs> and this mad age has added no new beats. Hallelujah. God has brought them through and not a sparrow falls without our Father. Hey, when's the last time you just thanked the Lord for that chorus of birds waking you up at 6 o'clock and then 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> on the farmhouse? That's not warblers. That's yeah, 4.30 every morning. You're worth so much more than even birds is Jesus' point. So don't worry. God's going to take care of you. You can't add to your stature. You can't add height. You can't add any length of time any more than your allotted time apart from you know miraculous interventions like Hezekiah or the sun standing still or things that are outside of the normal. You can't add to your stature. So just trust God for who you are. The second illustration he gives is for the lilies. So the birds covers his teaching about the food. Are you with me? The lilies will cover the concerns about the raiment and the body. The lilies, these flowers, probably wildflowers there in, in the hills, you know, all it takes is a mean wind to come, a hot wind from the desert, and just sweep through and scorch every one of those. And it's almost like a furnace out there, and it just cooks them all, and so they're here one day and they're gone the next. We see that here in Colorado, 50-degree temperature changes in a day. You know, that has a, 
an alarming effect on plants, <laughs> especially those that are left outside to the cold. They don't live. And so, you know, this is, this is similar, I think, to what Jesus is making a point on. These lilies that he points out, the lily of the valley, there's your song, they don't labor, and yet look how beautiful they are. I love to see the beautiful wildflowers of the Rocky Mountains. Verse 28, why take you thought for rain? Why are you worried about clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, you know, toil is a good word because that comes from the curse. Toil is when you work and work and work and work and have nothing to show for it when you're done. Work is not a bad word. Work is a four-letter word, but it's not a bad word. Mankind worked before the fall. They tended the garden. They kept it. They dressed it. What became bad was T-O-I-L, toil. You know, that's hitting your hand with a hammer. That's, you know, you put the thing up and it falls down tomorrow. And, and that's, you know, everything just breaks when you touch it. It's, you know, that's the next operating system that's going to roll out that doesn't work. That's toil, <laughs> right? He says, they, they don't toil. They don't get over anxious about all that stuff. They just grow. And God has made them beautiful. He says, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. Not arrayed uh, is a reflexive term, a reflexive word. It can be taken reflexively. You know, Solomon would have to go and be clothed in all of this raiment, in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. Jesus says, pales in comparison. There is no comparison to the beauty of God. Uh, we were out here the other week when it was snowing, and uh, the gentlemen were wearing, were wearing their black coats, and we were watching those snowflakes fall from the sky, and even just a snowflake. I tried to take a picture. It didn't work because I'm not a professional photographer. But, man, you can see all the detail. Every one of those snowflakes different. The beauty of God's creation. Just a simple snow. Just a simple flower. Look how God clothes creation and beauty and grandeur. Why are you going to worry about what you're going to wear? Just let God take care of that. You know, John the Baptist will be a case in point. Now, we don't all need to run around in camel's hair and eat locusts, but... You get the point. Then he makes the vocative statement. O ye of little faith. Now there's multiple times he's going to use that phrase for his disciples. Usually it's when they're struggling, isn't it? So do you see Jesus knows our struggles. And he anticipates those. And he says, the reason you're struggling with worry and anxiety is because of a lack of faith, ultimately. The birds, the flowers, they just trust, just trust him. You're going to serve God. You're going to give it all out. You're going to be expended for Christ. Where's it going to come? Where's the replenishment going to be? Just trust God. It'll show up in His time according to His way. And when it comes, it'll be like the sun of the morning rising with healing in His wings. So there's two illustrations. Then our Savior makes two inferences. Two illustrations, two inferences. The inference... First is for today, and the inference second is for tomorrow. Two treasures, two eyes, two masters. Two illustrations, two inferences. An inference for today, an inference for tomorrow. Take no thought. Don't be worried. How many times does he use that word? At least eight or so is, is the word that's used in different ways, whether it's a noun or a, a verb, it's woven throughout this passage. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Take no thought, take no thought, take no thought, take no thought, take no thought. Don't get consumed with this. The word take no thought. Okay, this is interesting, and I'll lean on uh, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones for, for uh, what I'm going to tell you here. 
He says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Who? His disciples. What shall we drink? His disciples. Wherewithal shall we be clothed? The explanation. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. Your Heavenly Father knows. Five times over, at least this phrase occurs, be not over careful, take no thought, don't be worried, don't be over anxious, however you want to put it. Be careful for enough, full of care is the idea. So the late Dr. Mark Lloyd-Jones, in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, second volume, he says, he points out that the original word used to indicate something which divides, something which separates, something which distracts. He goes on to say, if you turn to Luke chapter 12 and verse 29, Luke 12, 29, Luke 12, 29, thou fool, for tonight shall thy soul be required of thee. I know what I'll do. I'll lay up my treasures on earth. I'll build bigger barns. Okay, Luke chapter 12, he says, verse 29, the corresponding passage to this, you'll find that the expression is used, neither be ye of doubtful mind. So it's a mind which is divided into sections or compartments. It's not single. It's not simple. It's not whole. It's divided. That fits with the eye being the light of the body, right? So it's not functioning as a whole. A Bible expositor once described the, uh, the picture behind this word. He said, it could well be represented, listen to this, it could well be represented by a bulldog terrier tearing a rag doll to shreds. Take no thought. Don't let your mind become divided and your focus be torn into shreds. The devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is, here's the hard part, here's the catch, stayed on thee, not given, not drifting with the winds and tossed. If so, then it's not difficult to understand the mental distractions, the breakdowns that are so alarmingly common today. Boy, how true is that? Like a house that's divided against itself, which cannot stand, the mental structures of our personalities give way to a collapse. Eventually that's what happens. So Jesus encourages his disciples, and don't be like the Gentiles. Just trust God. They don't trust God. The Gentiles, we would expect this from the unsaved world, right? We should expect them to be concerned about all the food and all the raiment and, and all of the material things because that's all they have to live for. And then where does it go when they're gone? Maybe to the next generation if um, estate tax doesn't get it first. <laughs> Welcome to America. Where's it going to go? He says, don't be like the Gentiles. Remember, we were encouraged earlier in our prayer time to not do it like the heathen do. The vain babblings, the, the, the babblings over and over and over, owning ourselves into oblivion. I use that as an illustration of what happens today in these pagan mindsets, these Eastern mystical mindsets of people thinking they're praying and it's all for them, it's not for God, it's just for them to have therapy and feel better. Okay, the Gentiles do this because that's, that's the limit of their sight. They're not focused on eternity, and especially souls that are of value to God. 
Don't be like the Gentiles. Jesus encourages you, just trust God. Just trust Him. And then verse 33, we read it earlier this morning. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So secondly, okay, first, don't worry about today. The Gentiles are caught up into that. You know, that, that's how we expect them to live. Just trust God for today. Okay, Lord, what about tomorrow? Don't worry about the troubles of tomorrow. Number one, don't worry about the needs that you have for today. Number two, don't worry about the troubles that you fear would come tomorrow. Take no thought for the morrow. You're seeking first the kingdom of God, His righteousness. The promise is all these things, the food, the rain, the things you're concerned about, all these things shall be added unto you. Verse 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There's a story that was uh, told by about a man that was walking merrily down the street. He had his head raised high. He was whistling a happy tune. And, and a friend of his who knew him to be a, a worry wart, to be you know a worrisome kind of person, he stopped him and he inquired. He asked him, why did you have such a sudden change in your disposition? What happened here? And so the man replied, hey, I just struck a deal with, a, with somebody and they agreed to take all my cares they agreed to take all my concerns. That's the deal we worked out. And, and so I didn't need to worry anymore because, you know, I hired him to worry for me. Well, how much are you paying him? His friend inquired. Oh, I, I give him $1,000 a week, the man replied. $1,000 a week? Hey, I want that job. I'll worry for you. No kidding. $1,000 a week. That's amazing, okay? Where are you going to come up with that kind of money? And here was his reply. That's his worry. $1,000 a week. Not worried about it. That's his worry. Sometimes we can look at a passage like Matthew 6 and things seem so obvious, don't they? They just kind of stare us right in the face. But the obvious thing is that earthly concerns always need to be superseded. Something needs to come before them. Heavenly priorities need to take their place. We get focused on heaven and God's kingdom and His righteousness. Whose kingdom will you further? Whom do you serve? God or you? God or mammon? Whose kingdom will you further as you follow Him? Will it be His or will it be yours? This is, you know, what commentary after commentary called the cure for worry, the cure for anxiety. I'll tell you what, when I did a search through my library, I had no shortage of sermon outlines and sermons that have been preached from this passage. And I probably didn't do half of them justice. But I just want you to see what the text says so that you can make your own conclusion about what Jesus said and, you know, I can give you pointers on this and pointers on that, and I can try to help you alleviate your worry and your anxiety, and we can put band-aids on symptoms, or we can just go to the heart and get it right there. And once it's right there, then over time, eventually, everything will work out in the end. So, here's the solution Jesus gives as we 
put it all together, boil it all down, we need to realize that we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us. We pray to our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you realize how much He cares for you? Then why are you worried about tomorrow? If you really do realize that He's going to watch out for every little thing you need. Casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. That verse comes right before we learn about the devil being a roaring lion. Right before we learn about needing to be sober and vigilant. So we need to refuse to worry about material needs. We need to lay that at the cross. Say, Lord, I'm going to trust God, my Heavenly Father, to provide. Leave them with Him. Put His concerns first in your life. Have kingdom priorities. Whose kingdom will you further? These are all related, and yet they're separate issues, aren't they? A loving Father. A solid trust in Him. A deliberate refusal to worry. A life centered around Jesus Christ. All those things are said, yet they're the same. It's going to lead to the same place. In order to have that happen, friend, there will be no other way except God becomes first in your life. No others. First place. The place He deserves. Total commitment. That's Matthew's emphasis as he gleaned from Jesus' teachings on that hillside this day. He said, I took away from this. God's got to be first. Total allegiance. Complete commitment. If you're going to be shallow as a disciple, and you're only going to go so deep, and only going to walk so far until things get tough, then you're going to get scorched. Leave everything. You're going to leave everything to follow? Are you really going to leave everything? Lord, we left houses and homes and lands and all of that to serve you. What's in it for us? Peter says, you don't even know the half of it. Jesus' reply to him was, blessings now, blessings then. Everything. We leave it all to Father Christ. And so it's a mistaken assumption to think that God's satisfied with half-hearted commitment. He doesn't want our tithe simply, you know, show up and give our tithe and say we've done our our, our you know, service to the Lord. No, He wants our life. He wants all of it, not just our tithe. He wants the whole deal. It all belongs to Him anyway. And a tithe is just a small portion. It's just a way that we can say thanks, God, for providing. The thing about Luke 12, you know, that rich fool, the rich fool, that, that passage goes on to say this. He was not rich toward God. The heart of a disciple will be rich toward God. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's no question. The Apostle Paul put Christ over everything in his life. No matter what came, Jesus was always first. So the only way that we're going to get the cure for anxiety that Jesus gives here is if God is first. Also, if our earthly needs are placed under His providential care, we trust Him. Earthly needs, Lord, You take care of that. This isn't a passive approach to life. We work, we talk about that with the birds. We gather as we need to. But what we're emphasizing is a simple trust, simple faith that God's going to take care of you. This is what's in you. He's going to guide, He's going to provide so where there's a lack of dependence on God, there's going to be anxiety, there's going to be worry. Thirdly, I want to address this because 
many times I deal with people in counseling and things, and there's people that are convinced that anxiety in and of itself is a sin. Now, if you mean that you're going to miss a mark that God has for you, then I'll agree with you on that. But can I get you to look at it this way? It's not as much of a sin as much as it is a burden that you're carrying all by yourself that you don't need to carry. You're taking that upon you, and God doesn't desire you to do that. Okay, so it doesn't mean that if you're worried, here's, here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't mean if you are walking around and worried all the time, watch out for the lightning bolt from God because you're walking around and sin. Why don't you just see it from his perspective and observe how little you really are trusting him and say, Lord, forgive me for not trusting you more. Not, Lord, forgive me for the sin of anxiety and worry. Forgive me for not trusting you more like I should. And just let that take care of itself. Let God carry that burden. Let Him be your Father. Flee to His arms. Let Him take you up in His loving care and carry you through. John wrote these words that Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So, he didn't mean that if your heart's troubled, you're walking in sin. Jesus himself, if we're going to come to that conclusion, we have to remember, Jesus himself was grieved at times, and the wording is he was troubled in his spirit. So can you be troubled in spirit and it not be sin? You have to be able to be that way, or else our Savior, you have to say our Savior was walking in sin, and he was troubled in his spirit. So it's not that it's some grievous, wicked, heinous sin. It's just a matter of a lack of trust. Real trust in God is going to help you overcome. It's going to help you see by faith. That's where the victory is. And you'll be able to overcome anxiety, worry, fear. The troubled heart is only going to become sin. Listen now. It's only going to become sin when our God, you know, our God becomes our possessions and we let that dominate our lives and control everything and, and make the decisions for us because we're servant to that. That's when it becomes sin. Paul wrote this in Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5. 5. Turn over and read the list. Colossians 3, 5. He lists this big, long list. And this is what he says at the end of it all. He mentions covetousness. And he calls it what it is. In Colossians 3, 5, what does Paul say covetousness is? Along with all the other big lists there. One word answer. Idolatry. Idolatry. It's taking the place of God in your life. Covetousness. Mammon. I think that's pretty clear. I close with this and then we'll get into the Lord's table. An anonymous piece of doggerel says, Worry is a futile thing. It's something like a rocking chair. It'll keep you occupied, but it won't get you anywhere. 